I happened to play a one-on-one tournament. And one of the highlights was I got paired up with Jerry Buss, who's the owner of the Lakers who passed away. And so a funny story is when I'm trying to figure out what's next, I had asked this gentleman named Ed, who was his right hand, hey, I want to ask Dr. Buss a question. I want to talk about my future. Can I come have lunch and come to his house? And so they invited me and it was like a table and Jerry Buss is there and I'm there and they're serving us sandwiches. And he said, well, what's on your mind? And I said, I love poker. I had a great education, but I'm trying to think of what's next. And I think maybe a path to being the general manager of the Lakers would be a good idea. Even when he was ranked as the number two best poker player in the world in 2006, World Series of Poker champion turned entrepreneur David Danishkar always knew he was destined for more. The Berkeley graduate is a diehard Lakers fan, math whiz, and self-proclaimed nerd who has been fascinated by statistics, probability, and betting since his early high school days. From collecting baseball cards to winning big in casinos around the globe to starting his company's Bloom Nation and Whippy, David's been making his mom very proud every step of the way. Tune in to today's engaging episode as David spills how he convinced Jerry Buss to write his business school recommendation letter and what it takes to be a great poker player and even better business owner. David Dineshkar? Close. Did I say that right? Yeah, close, close. Danishgar, but it's close. Danishgar. Ah, <laughs> yeah. oh, what uh, descent yeah. is that? A Persian. I mean, really, it's Iranian, but in today's okay. day and age, we say Persian now. Persian. Yeah. 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 But uh, my parents are from Iran. Okay. So uh, for those that are tuning in, um, David and I had met, um, we both live in LA, but it took us both going to Kentucky to meet. Um, we were out there for a, a mutual friend, Bob Simon's uh, bourbon tour. And um, and there were some pretty fascinating people on this bus. Um, and uh, and after getting to kind of know a little bit more about David, you know, your story was just so interesting that I wanted to bring you onto the podcast. Awesome. So, so thanks for here. coming up. For sure. So, so you grew up in LA? Yeah. So I grew up in Westlake Village. Okay. Um, about... 30, 30 miles north of LA, kind of between here and Santa Barbara. Got it. Yep. They call that the, the burbs of yeah, LA. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. For those that don't know, uh, he is a World Series of Poker champion, which we're going to get into, right? And there's not too many people that just kind of walk around with that title. And so I, I do want to talk a little bit about that. But as a kid, were you like a gambler? Like where, where did this come from? No, no. So... Um, my parents, it came from Iran after the revolution. Okay. Um, my dad still doesn't know how to play poker. So, <laughs> uh, but they were always very supportive, which was a big deal. But, um, in Westlake, especially 20 plus years ago when I was in high school, mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily the most happening place. So a lot of us after school were interested in like statistics and probability and fun. So we would play like, you know, we'd bet a lot. And that statistics was in Statistics and probability. Fun. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe a better way to, to explain that uh-huh. that people know now is like, you know, we'd bet on sports. Okay. And we'd be like, hey, if you can do X, Y, and Z, I'll give you three times your money. Mm-hmm. So just for the layman terms, to not to glorify it, but we were always interested in like making prop bets or always doing things that we thought were fun. Mm-hmm. But in the end, like when you tell someone, if you give me $3, if you do it, if not, you give me one, you are kind of like, in a sense, uh, kind of guessing risk or probability. So got it. But 
it could be anything. So I think just after school, we were bored is a better way to say that mm-hmm. after high school. And so just kind of got into it. One of those, those things was poker. Poker. Huh? So, um, even dating back. So even going back beyond high school. So like, what kind of kid were you like, maybe like in grade school, were you into sports? What, what were you into? Uh, definitely somewhat nerdy for okay. sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I was talkative. I could definitely talk before I could walk. Okay. Just helped me. Um, the most recent ventures, mm-hmm. but definitely in terms of like classes, I, I hated English and I love math. Okay, math. So um, I was very close to my family. I was lucky to have very supportive parents, my brother, and I, I played soccer and kind of like, um, you know, when I was growing up and in high school and loved the Lakers and mm-hmm. kind of cliche, so to speak. I, I would probably say the first sense of kind of changes when, when I went to Berkeley. So I ended up going to, I got lucky to go to UC Berkeley. Okay. And that was definitely like a different experience where I saw a different world. So bef- before that, so what, tell me a little bit about your mom and dad. What kind of parents were they? Very close. And still to this day, like I'm very close with my parents, like, and they're very cool. I've been very fortunate. Like yesterday I was calling my mom and we'll get into like Whippy's like uh, text messaging, mm-hmm. but we were pranking people on the software. You and your mom? Yeah. <laughs> So, so I'm lucky that like my mom specifically is probably still one of my best friends. That's awesome. And my dad is super supportive, just a very different personality. Mm-hmm. My mom is more the business side. My dad is a gastroenterologist. Okay. So, so I'm a stomach doctor and very more of a listener than, mm-hmm. than a talker. So I say that's closer to my brother. Sure. And my mom is, is closer to me, more of an extrovert. So you have just one brother. That's well, it. The two of you. Older one, brother? Uh, younger, younger. Younger brother. Yeah. And so what, the, the four of us and- very fortunately, we went on vacations together, but we're very close. And so like, even when I, or the day I have a family, like I know a lot of my friends are like, well, I would do this differently, but I, I don't think anything my parents did. I mean, they were, I was very fortunate in, in that lottery ticket of a sense. I got very lucky. Hmm. What's your brother into? Um, my brother's an, an attorney. Okay. Um, he actually does some personal injury stuff, some corporate stuff. But he's very lucky, and we are, that he recently had had a daughter. And so it was like the first, obviously, grandchild oh, on bo- cool. both sides of the family. But it's just been pretty awe-inspiring to me to, like, hmm. to like see uh, a, a baby and get to see, like, the innocence and, and, and all of that. So it's been an amazing experience. And she just turned six months. Sienna is his daughter's name. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So you get to spoil your, your, your niece, you said? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, and it's. I, I, you know, I, I hope to have uh, a daughter or a son myself, but it's kind of the best of all worlds because I get to go during the happy times. Uh-huh. Once in a while, like they'll need me to change, change her, and I'm happy to. <laughs> well, I got, I got to see that experience, but <laughs> I, I get to see the best of it. Yeah. So, uh, so when you were like a kid, right? I think every kid was asked at one point, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I'm sure a professional poker player when you're seven was not kind of in the cards. Yeah. Um, so at, at, at Westlake high, they actually had a course, um, I think where you actually had cadavers. So, mm-hmm. so going through that, I was like, should I follow my dad's footsteps as a doctor? Sure. So my dad is more the doctor. My mom is more the business side. And so I kind of thought, oh, I'm going to be a, I, I wasn't like, I'm going to be a firefighter. I'm going to be yeah. a movie star. I, I kind of thought I'd be a doctor. Okay. But very quickly, um, I'm sure, I don't know if some of the people kind of relate to this, but I started getting into baseball cards a lot. Okay. Um, buying them, going to trade shows, selling them, love to collect them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, and also I was the same type of kid who lived near a golf course. I'd buy golf balls. I'd go to Costco, buy coffee, mark them up, go. I, I quickly realized like 
in high school, like I was going to be, it wasn't for me. Yeah. And so what, what was is like the entrepreneurial side and being your own boss. Uh-huh. Um, so, so that's kind of how I kind of grew up. So it was very quickly in high school when I was looking at the live cadavers and I was seeing people excited and I was just thinking about like, how can I flip my baseball cards to make hmm. more money? I think that kind of already started to signify the direction I'd go. That's so fascinating. So a friend of mine, um, big sports better, goes by Vegas Dave. Dave, okay. Dave Wancha is his name. Um, he's going to be a guest on the show here soon too. He um, he also he got his start in baseball cards too, right? And he was just doing things that were so kind of like not that at 11-year-old or 12-year-old would think of um, where he would – take his dad would take him to like where the hotel that the professional teams were playing. Right. Oh, wow. And so he'd sit down there waiting with his <laughs> baseball cards. Right. And then he'd see like Larry bird walk in. Yeah. Right. And Larry, little young kid, can you yeah, sign, sign his this baseball yeah. card? Right. Um, and then from there, you know, obviously the oh, value huge. of the baseball yeah. card goes way back up. Right. And so it's so interesting that, you know, gambling, the connection at such a high level today and it starts just with an interest in, in baseball cards. I will touch on one thing. So as we'll kind of find out, I, I, I think a little bit different than other people that went to professional poker. Mm -hmm. Like I never had the illusion that I'd do that forever. Mm -hmm. And even when I was interested, I was always more interested in the business. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, we'll get to that chapter soon. But yeah. I know some people who are doing it. And like from day one, I, I thought about it as an interesting challenge. But, but frankly, more like something that I knew, like, like people play golf now, you could always do it when you're retired sure, and you can be a really good player, but I, I never minced the idea that it would be something that I would do forever. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, it's a good skill to have yeah. for sure. Right. Yeah. Regardless of whatever you do for with sure. your life. So, uh, so you, you graduated high school. You said you got into Berkeley and went to Berkeley. Were there other colleges that you applied for that you got into? Um, yeah, but I think. Um, I actually, I remember it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was from LA. So the two that I was ex really was excited about was UCLA and Berkeley. Mm -hmm. I didn't really apply to that many out of state schools. And I think for myself, like I was actually more interested, like in having grown up and my family being in Westwood. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up getting accepted to Berkeley and not to UCLA. Okay. And I think for that one day I was like bummed, but then I went to go visit Berkeley's campus. And, and then as you'll learn, it was just like, it was a phenomenal experience. For yeah. Me that, that really changed. So now you're a freshman in Berkeley. You kind of have uh, an interest in, in business from kind of, you know, growing up. Um, and you were doing some poker and, and stuff in high school. So tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, your experience in, you taught a class in Berkeley, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that. Okay. So probably wind till, till we get to that point. But like when I got to Berkeley, I I think the cool thing was that it wasn't just the school, it was a city too. And so got to meet a lot of interesting people, but the thought way people thought was different. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I caught on to was that there was two students, there was something called a decal class and decals where students could teach classes. If they could prove that there was educational experience, that's probably questionable. Mm -hmm. So there was a class on Seinfeld, believe it or not. A class on Seinfeld. Yes. Okay. I mean, but these are student-run classes. Uh -huh. So it's like, it's pass, not pass. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then there was a class, and then I took a class on blackjack card counting, believe it or not. Okay. Again, this is Berkeley. So it was very different. <laughs> um, 
But I thought, oh, this is awesome. I'm pretty interested in poker. I would love to teach a class on poker. So I went to go to apply and it got rejected. Hmm. So probably one of the things you'll get with everyone is resilience. So my last year, I was like, I'm getting more interested in poker. There was a casino out there and I seem to be doing okay. And this is right before, believe it or not, this is the same quarter that Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker in 2003. He hadn't won it yet. Okay. And it just happened to be that the class I was doing was that exact time where poker boomed. Okay. And so it hadn't boomed yet. And so I was, uh, I was really interested and went back with a bag of bagels. And I said, I'm going to go find a math professor and show them the statistics behind it. And luckily that last quarter before I left the last semester, they approved it. Hmm. So my last semester, I got to teach, uh, uh, it was actually called probability and statistics of gaming. It wasn't called poker, but yeah, I was, I was there. And the, the most important lesson I can tell you about that experience is that you learn quickly when you have to structure things. So I had all these thoughts, but they weren't structured. Sure. And starting next week, I had to teach a class. So very quickly, and at that point, it was just VHS. I had to order VHS videos. I had to put my own curriculum together. And by doing that, I actually kind of learned how to structure my thoughts on poker. That helped a lot. Fascinating. Funny that they have a, it's it's okay to have a card counting class, but not a statistics class, right? So uh, my president of Hennessy Digital, our agency, went to MIT. And, you know, obviously yeah. MIT has the very famous Poker story. I'm oh, sorry, right? Blackjack. Blackjack, yeah. yeah, that's different. I'm Blackjack, yeah. Um, I was actually, ironically, in the movie 21. No way. Yeah, I played uh, a DJ. I ended up getting <laughs> I ended up getting cut out. So, like, after spending, like, eight hours on set and making 50 bucks, right, I'm thinking, like, hey, this is my claim to fame. And <laughs> go to the movie theater, watch it, bring all my friends. And they're like, we can't even see you. And so, anyway, that was a big letdown. <laughs> um, but that was pretty, pretty fascinating because I think um, – you know, they teach that class in MIT, but then they say that you can't go and use it at casinos, right? It's like illegal. Yeah. Right? So card counting. I mean, I don't know the all rules, but I know one thing is, so, I mean, I don't know how it's illegal. There's some rule that says if you have an unfair advantage on a casino. Yeah. I mean, common thought would be like, well, you have an unfair advantage when I play every hand. Exactly. So... So there's a lot kind of about that. I mean, not to deter, but I think one of the most interesting cases that you can read about was Phil Ivey recently, like they withheld $20 million from hotels because he was playing, I think it was Pi Gal. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different. He did something called, um, it, it was basically on the edge of cards, their perforations. Yeah. And he was with a lady who could memorize those. Wow. And so he ended up beating, uh, and they didn't know because it was a high net wealth individual mm -hmm. and he loves to gamble, but I think he'd won something like 20 or $30 million and it's in court now. Like, is that, is that unfair? It was the casino that put those cards out, not him. Sure. So there's a lot of stuff on what is considered unfair advantage. Interesting. But um, I, I think I did it more just to like, I thought it was cool and to get to know people to when I took it. that class. But mm -hmm. once I was the student, it was pretty quick. I said, you know what? This is awesome. Maybe I'm interested in poker. I can do the same next year. I can teach a class. So another quick story about about poker for me. Um, so way early on in my career, probably dating back to probably like around the same time um, with the Chris Moneymaker stuff, um, I was doing SEO for Ultimate Bet. Yes. Ultimate Bet and poker. I can't remember the other one. Ultimate Bet. There's another one. 
And so uh, my whole job was basically keeping us ranking number one for the keyword online poker, right? And there's some crazy strategies that I think we talked about, you know, even when we were um, back in Kentucky. But that was that was such a, a fascinating and ultimate, yeah, absolute poker and ultimate bet. Those were the two. Um, and we had them ranking like number one and number two. And then uh, Phil Ivey's poker stars. Was that the other one? There was at the time there was, well, Phil Ivey was full tilt poker. Full tilt. Okay. And there was party poker and poker stars. Actually. Poker stars was the other one. Yeah. And I remember seeing them in reverse engineering all their SEO <laughs> strategies back in the day. Because it was such a big difference yeah. in um, profit to be ranking number one on Google for that term. But then I remember very clearly, um, you know, I, I was in Vegas and I woke up one morning and my text messages were blowing up and like every single website the FBI had seized. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was called Black Friday. Black Friday. I, I remember because, so that was, so it was, it was after, I think it was after I won the World Series of Poker mm -hmm. and I was already kind of like, I'm on thinking about the next thing, but it that totally changed poker. Like, because what happened during Black Friday is, I don't, you'd have to look this up, but I believe there was, believe it or not, a terror bill at the time. Okay. Something like that. And someone in, in, in Congress or Senate snuck a clause in there that had to do with payments and processing uh -huh. because it could go to someone that you don't want to. And poker fell under that. So it was kind of like, it, it really changed poker because at that point in time, if you can't get money into accounts like the fish, the bad players, yeah, they need a quick fix, right? Huh. And, and they can't get it anymore. So it ended up eventually being pros against pros. And then by the time that momentum kind of ceased, it wasn't able to kind of catch back up. So, mm. so that whole series where the sites went down really changed, I think, the landscape of poker. Oh, wow. Yeah. No warning, nothing. It was just like, boom, it was like shut down. Like, what do you do? And that was a big account for me, obviously. So it hit me financially at the yeah. time, but it hit so many other people. Like my problems were just so micro <laughs> compared to like everybody else. Right. Yeah. So, um, so what was one of the most rewarding parts about like teaching that class and, and working with students? Um, well, I, I think so, so going back to kid, as I said a little bit, mm -hmm. I wasn't shy, but definitely like I hadn't had a platform mm -hmm. and I think it, it, like when I go to the future and we talk about like companies and teams, I think educating people and finding digestible ways to do that is like imperative for anyone. Like mm -hmm. if you want to grow a company, even a customer, like right now as I onboard customers, you have to speak their language. Mm -hmm. So some of them, you may have to be technical. Some of them, you may have to be like, just like mano a mano. Mm -hmm. But I think I learned that everyone kind of learns at different paces and you have to kind of figure that out. Um, so that was very rewarding. And I, 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 the other thing that was very rewarding as you'll tell is that as I actually had to put this stuff and teach people, I was teaching myself. Hmm. And at that point in time, there weren't a lot of people. As the class ended in May, was that summer that Chris Moneymaker won the World Series. So when you have this rush of people, it was fortuitous that like right at that same time, I'd already thought through strategies. Hmm. So so that ended up becoming very helpful for the next couple of years. And so were you, um, you weren't a professional poker player at that time, were you? Because no, you're no, still no. in college, right? No, and I wasn't after. After college, I graduated and I was like, what should I do? And so I worked at Countrywide, which is kind yeah. of, which kind of may have been one of the chips or dominoes in, in the financial crisis, uh -huh. but I wasn't really fulfilled. I was like, okay, this is cool. But like, I was still thinking about poker. And so when I graduated and I was there, I was still going to the casino sometimes at night times. And I just kind of realized one specific day they had a tournament at Hollywood park and I went to play it. 
And I remember I was out till like, and I think I was living back home at this point, like till three at the morning. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I was playing and I was playing and I won. Hmm. And I think, I mean, obviously it's a sizable amount, but I think at that point I won like, what, what would it, what I would have got paid three or four months. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think I won like 15,000 for this tournament. Wow. And so I remember I, I was three in the morning and I just graduated. So I was back at home. Mm -hmm. I remember getting in and my mom, the business side goes, yeah. what are you doing at 3 a.m.? <laughs> what are you doing out? You know what I mean? Like you're up to no good. Yeah. And she could see I was a little nervous. And I said, oh, I played a poker table, a poker tournament. Mm -hmm. And she's like, what happened? So I kind of showed her the money and I was like waiting to see what happens. Yeah. And, and my mom, to, to her credit, is like, so can you do that again? <laughs> <laughs> Not the uh, answer you probably were thinking she was going to give you, huh? Yeah, but it just, it shows me that like, she, she, I think she in her heart already knew that it's something that, you know, I talked to her about when I did at Berkeley and stuff. And so when people think of poker, sometimes they confuse it with blackjack or roulette. Yeah. But you're playing against other people. You're not playing against the casino. That's true. So, um, and at that time versus now, it was, it could be repeated quite often. It was, it was, the people are not playing it correctly. So, I so I think that kind of started the next chapter. So I think this is a rhetorical question, right? Because obviously you taught a class on statistics, but having a math background, um, is definitely gives you a competitive advantage on the table. Yeah. I mean, so I didn't, I wasn't actually a math major. I, I liked math. Mm -hmm. I was an econ and business major. But I think there were a couple of things that I used to tell people. So like in poker, like knowing the math is helpful. Mm -hmm. It's pretty important, but it's not, if you know the math, so that's the first level. Yeah. The second level is psychology because you have to try to think a little bit about why are people doing this? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's even a more important level. So if a hundred people can do math, I think 10 people can take it to the next level and understand like, the psychology behind book game theory or why is this person leaning for what are they trying to portray it's like a story hmm. and then i think only one out of a hundred you know have the fortitude to do anything about it so yeah. it's it's difficult because in that moment your math's lined up you're pretty sure everything's telling you this person's you know going a certain way but do you have the the courage to pull the trigger yeah especially when like it can be a house you know it can be a car it, it's so you have to somehow like Think of it as monopoly money. Yeah. It's not real money. Yeah. But I, I think if you can do all those, at least at my time. So this is like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, poker's changed a lot since then. I think that was a really good recipe for being successful. Interesting. And so, um, you know, you, you, you see these professional poker players, right? There's a strategy definitely happening, right? Within the whole table. <clears throat> How often, like, just percentage of the time did the professionals bluff? You know, I think that, that there's the actual correct answer is it's depending on the situation. So I think I always like to put this in like the real world, uh -huh. but it's like, how often does someone exaggerate that they're going to be there on time? Maybe let's just take it to a totally different level. Yeah. You, I mean, if they're a nice person and you're accepting of it, uh -huh. they're probably going to do it more. If it was a strict teacher, they did it less. So it really depends on your audience. So the better way to say this is if you're at a poker table and most people are conservative, yeah. you're going to bluff more. Okay. If you're at a poker table where everyone's wild and crazy, yeah. you're actually going to probably bluff less. Huh. So it's really, if you're playing it correct, there's no set formula. It's, it's a dynamic game like life, you know? Got to read your audience. That's true. Huh. 
David's revealing some of his personal strategies here on this podcast. I love it. All right. So you won your first tournament. All right. Mom gave you the blessing to move <laughs> yes, forward. <laughs> After my bar mitzvah, this was the next blessing. So what happens next? You're hooked, huh? I mean, I, I just, I was intrigued. And okay. so after a couple more tournaments, I kind of said, you know what? I didn't have that much money to my name. I was just like, I I'm going to go find another job that's not fulfilling. And in the meanwhile, I'm going to just, you know, give this a try to see what can happen. And and so what started like that, like definitely turned into a couple more tournaments where I just thought like it couldn't be chance, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I remember specifically that same year, I was like to my brother, I was like, you know, it'd be really cool is to go travel and play poker. And so there was a tournament in Barcelona and I said, let's go, go for it. Let's go for that tournament. Yeah. And I remember it was a, it was a bigger tournament. There was maybe like a thousand dollars. And at that point, the highest I'd played is like a hundred or 200 or 300. Okay. And I remember I just kept losing and I kept losing. And so I was down to, if you started with, you know, a thousand dollars in chips, I was down to. $80. Okay. I was demoralized. And so in poker, a lot of times for the bigger tournaments, they have dinner breaks. So I remember telling my brother, let's just get out of Spain. Like this poker is not for me. It was a good run, but I really wanted to try it in a bigger tournament. And and I tried a couple and I was like, maybe I'm not, not that good, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's life. Like I know we'll talk about failure and stuff, but I think adversity is a big thing that doesn't get highlighted as much. Sure. Um, but it, that tournament, I came back and I think probably luck more than anything, but things started to turn around and I ended up winning that that tournament. And I remember how much things changed. It was like, it's like a ripple in a pond. And after everyone, you told your brother that, hey, I'm ready yeah, to give yeah, up, you ended up winning it. Very quickly. I was like, I mean, this is after, I was like, okay, we'll just do this as a hobby. I, I ended up winning it. Mm -hmm. So I, I won a larger sum amount of money that, at that point that was very significant to me. We went out for dinner and my brother Stevie was there in Barcelona with me. Hmm. And I remember coming back and I was like, okay, I'm going to really give this a try. So, so, so that was one time where I was literally one hand away from, from probably not, not being able to continue yeah. that path. So giving up sometimes like it's crazy it is it's just some of it's luck as well. Hmm. So you won that tournament came back home, mom said, can you do it again, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you're internationally now, right? A star. Yes, taking it taking it out. To and the... so you're like, okay, great. I'm just going to kind of pursue this here and see where it takes me. And how old are you? you how old are you at the time? Pro, pro, I mean, definitely early 20s. So okay. 20, I think at this point, probably 22, yep. 23. Mm -hmm. But then once I did commit, like it was like, I'm going to do this full time for, yeah. for a year. I, because after Barcelona, I had a decent amount. I remember I came back and won something at Commerce, where, by the way, just to throw out a shout out, that's where I met one of Bob Simon's best friends, Moro. So Moro, who we'd met on yeah. our trip to Kentucky, just showing how long I've known him. I was like 23 and Moro, um, and, and that thing made the final table. And still 17 years later, he's never made another final table. Oh, really? Yeah. So, 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 so talk, about, talk about fate, right? So he became one of my best friends yeah. and how I actually got connected that's with right. personal injury. But like, yeah, I came back to commerce and I won that tournament. Mm -hmm. And then in 2006, I just had like a great run. And at one point I was ranked like number two in the world in in in, in poker. Hmm. And I think at the end of the year in 2006, I was like number five. And I won several tournaments and that was like a life-changing year for me, for sure. So so that's 2006, Six, you said? Yeah. And so does that, how do you even get to play in the World Series of Poker? So I hadn't won the World Series yet. Okay. 2006, 
I, I I'd probably played one or two of the tournaments in the World Series and had no luck, but yeah. I won a tournament in. So then I won a big tournament in Bellagio in Las Vegas. Okay. And then I won a tournament at the Bicycle Casino. So I just started kind of like going around and and you know putting a bankroll together. Uh huh. Um, meeting a lot of cool people along the way, and that's when I was like, okay, I'm really going to give this a run. And that year is when I finished top five. Top five. And okay, so that's 2008 now. 2006. 2006 still. Yeah. Okay, great. And so um, you, but when was the first year that you played in the World Series? Probably that year. Actually. 2006. Yeah. Okay. And you didn't end up at the final table that year. No. And to to clarify, the World Series of Poker has a series of different tournaments. Okay. So there's the main event, okay. which has like a ginormous, and then there's several events that lead up to that. Okay. So I think at that year I had played two of the preliminary and then I think that year I tried the main event as well. Got it. But no final table. No final table. 2007 had some luck as well. So so I think this is a good place to kind of I think talk about like adversity, right? So yeah. 2007 I started playing a little bit poorly. Okay. Because what ended up happening as in life is you have some luck and you don't adjust and you think you're invincible. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely had this series of months where I was actually losing, not winning. Because I was trying to outplay everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's like in basketball, someone gets on the court and just starts trying to dribble and not pass. Yeah. And so it's like fancy play syndrome, maybe. Mm -hmm. Which is like, I know that you don't have the best hand. So I'm just gonna push all in. But you still call and you should have folded. Mm -hmm. So you're a bad player. But a really good player would know that he wouldn't have folded anyway. So I think there was some fancy play syndrome. Yeah. Um, which got turned around, but definitely in that year, um, there was definitely some doubts again, like, okay, was that was I just lucky again? And so I think in 2008, that's when I decided to play the game correctly, correctly mm -hmm. back to where I was. But also one good thing about 2007, which you have adversity, is I knew that like if I do get back to where I want to get back to, poker for me was a great game for networking, great skill to have, but it wasn't the sale be all. And mm -hmm. so I had already told myself, should I go and do something great? I had already committed myself to checking that mark off the box and yeah. and moving on to, to what I thought was even more interesting, which was business, probably a year before it happened. Okay. Hmm. And that's an interesting story too, which I want to come to here. Because um, Bloom Nation, did that happen before you won the World Series? Oh, no, no, after. That's so. after. Okay, so let's continue down this <laughs> yeah. journey here. So, yeah. so, uh, so 2008, you have a good year. You're probably top ranked in the in the world again, I'd imagine. Yeah, I wasn't as ranked as high as okay. I was in 2006. Because yep. 2006, but 2008 is when finally I, I, I won one of the World Series poker tournaments. Mm -hmm. um, my family flew out there. My mom flew out there. My brother. Yeah, and I think once I won that tournament, like it was almost like, okay, I now did what I needed to do. Yeah. So was that the main event that you no, won? It was not no. the main event. It was okay. the, actually the one right before the main event. Okay, got so it. So it was pretty, still pretty challenging. There was, I think, in my tournament, there's twenty five hundred people. Sure. Um, so it's crazy. Like you're you're up against like a mini stadium. Wow. Um, but that's when, um, that's when I I said okay, I did it, and so I knew that. The following year, I was actually going to make a change hmm. and still play poker, but kind of like you rode that high and kind of like level off, right? Yeah. And it's interesting just to, to, to kind of think about that. A lot of people that are even good at poker, they have like leaks, right? Mm -hmm. They go to play craps. They go to play other stuff. 
But I never, never was ever interested in that. Like, because I didn't get the same rush that I would in poker. Yeah. Like reading someone and analyzing someone. So I was fortunate enough to like take that next step and not not as a result of going south. Yeah. But a result of just like growing as a person, I guess you could say. So it was in 2009 where I was like, I'm going to figure out what's next. Yeah. And to take one step back, which is an interesting segue, kind of in 2007, 2008, I met a lot of cool people in poker, but I happened to play a one-on-one tournament in that year. Mm-hmm. And one of the highlights was I got paired up with Jerry Buss, who's the owner of the Lakers who passed away. Hmm. And it was a best of three. You, you'd have to, whoever won best of three. Yeah. So what do you think I do when you're sitting across? And at that point, he was the owner of the Lakers and the Lakers were hot. <clears throat> and you're a fan your whole life, right? Fan yeah. my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there across from, and he knew me before. But we really got a chance to know each other. So I totally slowed the game down. <laughs> so this person next to me is waiting to to play the winner. And, and I, I decided to make the game versus Dr. Bus last five hours. Yeah. <laughs> because so, you can do that. Yeah, I could do it. And and I think the reason I mentioned that is after that, I was lucky enough to get invited to, to the games. Mm-hmm. And so a funny story is when I'm trying to figure out what's next. Yeah. Um, uh, I had asked... Um, this gentleman named Ed, who was his right hand, hey, I want to ask Dr. Bus a question. I want to talk about my future. Can I come have lunch and come to his house? Mm-hmm. And so they invited me and it was like a table and Jerry Bus is there and I'm there and they're serving us sandwiches. And he said, well, what's on your mind? And I said, look, I, I, I love poker. I had a great education, but I think like I'm trying to think of what's next. And I think maybe a path to being the general manager of the Lakers would be a good idea. <laughs> Why not? Go for it, right? Go for it. Go big or go home. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so did he kick you out of his house? No, <laughs> no. He, he he liked me in terms of poker too much. So uh-huh. he was very quick to say that that his family was going to probably be doing that. But he's like, was there anything else I can do? And I said, well, because he went to USC and he was big in business. You know, he owned a lot of real estate. I, uh-huh. I know there's a show now actually about it that people are watching. But Mm-hmm. I, I was telling them about business school and they agreed to write my letter recommendation. So who else do you want to write that no, letter, right? No. So that, that kind of segues the next chapter, but mm-hmm. before Bloom Nation happened, I decided to go to business school. Okay. Because what I'd heard from a lot of friends, and it's questionable if it's worth it. So I can talk about that later. But like when you come from poker, you know what you talked about the bus, or someone at our school was an NFL player, or someone actually went to space, whatever it is, if you want to kind of do a dramatic change. They've always kind of mentioned to me that business school and getting your MBA was a good segue. And so uh, that's when I applied uh, to business school. Okay. Got it. And so where'd you go to business school? Being the poker player I was, Mm -hmm. uh, I was pretty efficient. I'd actually hired like a business school consultant. Okay. Which was someone who like really helped you prep, help you take some of the manual work out of the process. Yeah. So... I mean, they would help me craft my story and, and, and really just like most importantly, learn my interests and point me to which schools they thought could be the best and tell me to go talk to these professors. They're pretty nifty business. But mm. I decided just to, if it was going to be worth it to apply to the best schools. So uh, I got waitlisted at Stanford. And that was kind of Stanford's where I wanted to go because I was interested in in, in um, business. But I ended up getting accepted uh, to the University of Chicago. Okay. And so I always lived... I was in San Francisco. I was in LA. I was like, Chicago's going to be cool. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the best business schools. And so ended up going to Chicago Booth. Okay. So at school, you're now learning about, you know, business um, at a more advanced level. 
you've never had a business yet, right? Up until this point, no, besides your was, baseball card business he, back in the day, right? Yeah, there was some small businesses I'd done in, in the poker world, <clears throat> mm -hmm. but nothing, nothing large. And again, it's just like crazy about adversity. You get back there and you just got from playing a poker game and you're like, I'm going to the next level. Yeah. And wow, that first year did I have kind of like a crash because you go from that high to like having to learn accounting again, mm -hmm. having to learn about stuff. And so there was definitely a point in the first year when I was talking to people close to me. So Chicago is known to be really heavy in finance and consulting. Mm -hmm. And so I was surrounded by those people and, and I would go visit those companies and I was getting recruited a lot, given my background for like finance companies. Sure. But it was semi-depressing, to be honest with you. Hmm. You came from a world where it was your own. And so I did contemplate like, should I drop out of business school in that first year? But what, what, what kept me going and what I realized is that there was a program where you could actually run your own, like a, a business school competition. And, and at that point in time, like a lot of now big companies came out of that competition. Like one was Grubhub where people order food and sure. a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of stuck with it. And once I found the entrepreneurial path and one of my you know best friends growing up who was in LA, he had actually come up with the idea of Bloom Nation. And he was talking to myself and one of his other best friends about, hey, this can be a real idea. That that summer between my first and second year in business school, where most people go like volunteer at a bank and sell their soul, so to speak. Yeah. I was walking around to flower shops to see if it was a viable idea. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we kind of committed to doing it. Okay. Um, and then that totally changed my, my direction in business school. Like you were going to a class that was marketing. And you could bring your actual concept there. Hmm. And there was a class on how to raise money. And so I always thought, like same with poker, I always thought if you're conceptually learning something that you're not actually executing or implementing, it's boring. It's not like you can read poker books all you want, but if you don't get on the table, you're I think you're wasting your time. Same thing with business, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So when I was going to business school, most of my friends were like doing mock classes. Sure. When we were talking about raising money, I was going to the professor and be like, well, this is my business. And actually we had interest already Here's something about raising money. And it just changed how I looked at business school. Yeah. Because I had a real business that we were running through business school. And so you have that business school competition and you start with like a hundred companies, but they give you some money and you get to be in front of investors. And we were one of the winners. I think we were third or second place. We didn't win first place, mm -hmm. but it was enough to kickstart um, the, the business. Direct, yeah, the business. Yeah. Got it. So so that was kind of, yeah. So you had like a... An, a of MVP, I guess, if you will. So, so that's a good question. So normally you have an MVP, but like at this point in time, so maybe I'll touch on, on what, what Bloom Nation was. Yeah, so my, my partner, um, at the time, Farbod, his aunt was a local florist okay. and he'd come from an investment banking background. And so he thought that the way you order flowers is, is like you either, you know, call a local florist, but you don't have all these local florists in one place. Mm-hmm. Or you have to go through like Teleflora or 1-800-Flowers and like you can't see what you're buying. Mm. So there's a total um, misconnection there. So like if you want to go to one place, like an Airbnb for flowers now or like an Etsy for flowers. Yeah. So you can order anywhere in the country. It didn't exist. Mm. Like Teleflora did, but the photos you saw, it was just a broker. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that kind of started Bloom Nation as that marketplace for people to go and, and order from anywhere in the country. Mm. Got it. And... uh I come from the wedding business myself. Yes. I was a DJ for so yes, long, yeah. right? I speak at the wedding MBA every year, right? So I, I deal and interact with these with these florists. So you you started with the technology first 
And then from there you went and got your first floor. Well, I guess it might've been his aunt's business first, right? That that's a, that's it. a good question. Yeah. Cause now I can always talk about how we do things differently now at the next mm -hmm. venture. Yeah. But I think we kind of started alongside with florists. Yeah. So there's good and bad in that, but uh, you know, it's always good to be able to talk. And that was my job to go find these florists. And it was a crazy adventure back to the poker world. Like you had no fear in poker. Uh -huh. I know there were several times that you have you have to to get things done in the beginning. One of my biggest tips in this whole podcast is if you really want to start a big business, you have to do things that are not scalable. Mm. So I went to that shop and he, the guy said no. Okay. I went in again and he said get out of here. <laughs> the third time he said I'm calling the police. And now he's he's actually one of our best friends. Is that right? And suggests people, but like mm -hmm. starting a business is not easy. No. So it was, it was, you have to be pretty, um, like poker, like poker. You can't get on tilt maybe. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we went around and we did that and like built it alongside some florists, built this marketplace. Um, but that didn't end up becoming our biggest product. What we realized when we're helping the florists is like, wow, they need a marketplace. And this is more your world even, mm -hmm. but wow, they need a website. They need marketing tools. They need SEO. They need something that has like delivery tracking. Mm -hmm. There was just a whole platform that I think we needed to build. And so and so that became Bloom Nation. Got it. And so you started to develop this. It was completely bootstrapped at first. Uh, that's a good question. So <laughs> it was bootstrapped. I think we were in a fortunate situation where they both, my two partners, Greg and Farbo, mm -hmm. they came from like banking. So they had a little cash. Okay. And I just came from poker. Uh -huh. So we didn't start it with an engineer. So we started by going to like an outsource agency and that kind of presented its own challenges. So we had to put a lot of money in the beginning, a couple hundred grand together. Okay. Um, but once we started seeing that and we met some investors, we were fortunate enough to meet some really good investors, but we had to start it with hundreds of thousands of dollars, Yeah. which when I started my next venture right now, I had to, I tried it a very different way, which we'll talk about probably later. Yeah. So, so one of the fascinating stories is how you were able to kind of leverage your poker skills to raise some seed capital for this venture. But then what's even more brilliant than that is how you then leverage that for publicity and PR. Yes, like, yes, just yes, like, yes. that was the kind of stuff that I'm like, I gotta have uh, yes. David on my show. What well, was coincident, I mean, good. So, so before we had to, so we had to put a couple hundred grand, mm -hmm. but back up, we had to start with 30 grand. Yep. And so um, to get like, the outsourced company to like do our proof of concept. Mm -hmm. And so when we um, went to, so we were thinking, how are we going to do this? And I happened to be still in the poker mindset, mm -hmm. even back from business school. And I saw, hadn't played for a while, but I saw Commerce had a tournament that day. It was a thousand dollar buy-in. It was a mm hundred -hmm. players. First place was like 30 something thousand dollars. And I was like, this makes a lot of sense. Let's just split this. Mm -hmm. And if we win, you know, we, we're, we're, we're in, yep. so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so one of my partners was a little conservative. And he, he remembered, he's like, he was joking. He's like, you know what? If they send us a limo, because we got to work on the way, we're working. Yeah. And so I knew someone at Commerce and they agreed. Okay. So I was like, they're sending a limo. So we sat at a poker table and I started playing and they were next to me doing the design for the website. And mm -hmm. so that tournament, 100 down to 80, finally down to five. Once it was five, they kind of stopped working and they were crowding around. Mm -hmm. And when it was down to two people, I remember this vividly. The last hand we went all in mm -hmm. and I had two pairs. My competitor had one pair, okay. but he didn't realize it. So he started celebrating with his crowd and I could see them and they're like, we didn't have the 30,000 bucks. It was their mentality. We fell short. Uh, yeah. 
And I remember kind of the quote that they they took, but what was kind of real is I said, don't worry, boys, it's flower time. <laughs> and so and so the guy came back, my competitor, and he basically misread my hand. Uh-huh. And so that was the first $30,000 in it and, and just kept blossoming from there. So cool. And if you Google that story, there's press yeah, all yeah. over the place about it, right? So, so because you the, leveraged that. Yeah, so about the SEO. So uh, Greg at the time, mm-hmm. he was more knowledgeable about SEO and we happened to have a publicist because he was all like, backlinks are going to make a difference, high authority backlinks, all that stuff. And so the publicist kind of ran with that. And I remember we had a publicist and she's like, we're going to go to New York. And, and, and I remember um, my partner at the time, the CFO, was like, she can only go to New York if she gets to several death sites. So she's like, David, I'll get it. And so I don't. it sounds like a lot, but she booked like 12 death sites on one trip. Hmm. And it was like, we went to like Fox News. We were at People Magazine, Time Magazine, mm-hmm. Forbes. And I was like, wow, okay, this story really resonates. And sure. So, and so it really did make a big difference in terms of like getting that story out. Yeah. And so from people that are listening that don't follow SEO, right? So when you get publicity like that and they link back to bloomnation.com, you know, you get the authority that passes over and that kind of accelerates your Google rankings and your whole business. So that's why I really kind of personally kind of admire that. Um, So then from there, then you guys went on and I'm making a longer story short, you then raised like real capital then after that, Yeah, so we, so I think the way just for people that are viewing, so first 30K came from that. We Mm -hmm. got like the first version of of our software. Yeah. Obviously it didn't do the job. Like Mm -hmm. outsourcing, um, especially back then when there wasn't as many different platforms, whether you want to call Shopify or or all these different stuff, we Mm use Magento. So. Um, so then we put some money ourselves and then when we came back, there's a lot of cool stories. Like actually, um, I think it was Bill Gurley. He didn't invest, but he was, uh, on benchmark capital, the same one that was on the board, at like Uber, mm-hmm. the one where they had that issue where he was fighting with the CEO. Yeah. He walked into our office and he's like, this is pretty awesome, but here are the changes I'd make. Mm-hmm. And one of them, um, was that you need to give them more tools. Like mm. you need to put their picture at the front. You need to give them software. And if you do that, which now we know because everyone makes their own Shopify store. Mm-hmm. If you give them the tools to empower themselves, that would be a good business. And so we ended up doing that and seeing traction. And we raised a million and a half soon after from like, and we got lucky, like really good investors, like Andreessen Horowitz, um, Spark Capital, big, big names. That yeah. I was shocked that we're investing in, in a seed round. Hmm. I see. Back while you were doing that, <clears throat> I had a, a wedding directory. Uh-huh. I had a multiple wedding directories. Uh, one was called Los Angeles Wedding Mall. I had Seattle Wedding Mall. I had Phoenix Wedding Mall, right? I had all these directories, right? Um, and I had sales team that was kind of dialing for dollars and calling the same floors that you were calling I get the time too. Um, and so I had this vision um, of kind of building out a massive wedding directory. And so at the time, Zappos had just moved um, from San Francisco, I believe, to um, Vegas. And so I seen on the news. And so I just randomly sent an email to Tony, right? The yeah. CEO of, of Zappos, rest in peace. Um, and he actually responded back to me, right? And so like in life, right, you have to kind of take action to get yes. results, right? Heck, we could be talking right now and you could be the general manager of the Lakers, right? You you took the action. You took the <laughs> yeah, shot, right? Yeah, you have to. <clears throat> um, and so I just randomly emailed him and uh, he then connected me with a guy named Fred Mosler. Mosler um, and then who then connected me with Alfred Lynn, 
Um, and so they're like, hey, come on down. Love to meet with you, right? And so here I am, some young 22-year-old kid with a vision. Um, and, you know, I got invited down and they gave me like this whole VIP treatment. And I was brought into the office with freaking Tony, Fred, and uh, and and Alfred, who, who now works. Uh, he's like at Sequoia Capital, right? Um, and so, you know, what are you here for? And I'm like, well, I've got this vision. I've got this idea. Um, and so I, I, I messed up because I, my whole vision was kind of monetizing wedding vendors. Right. And so my idea was like, if I can get a florist to pay us 99 bucks a month to advertise here. And if I could pay, you know, get a DJ in this market and build out, like I was this close away from getting like Zappos to invest in the business. But what they didn't like is that I didn't see the opportunity to actually monetize the brides. Like I, that wasn't really my pitch. I was more kind of in tune and trying to monetize all the vendors globally and creating this marketplace. And so they politely declined. Yeah. But the fact that I was able to get there yeah. um, was pretty, uh, is awesome. And yeah. who was, I'm trying to think, was was the winner in that, that type of world, like Thumbtack or was that? Thumbtack was the knot, was the big yeah. one. And then another one came, uh, was a company called Wedding Wire. Yeah. Yep. They kind of came and they were more of the um, uh, technology kind of focused yeah. company. And then Wedding Wire ended up acquiring the knot. Yeah. So they actually own them now. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, but anyway, that's, uh, that was my story. So, so then, you know, back to Bloom Nation. So you kind of, now you raised a couple million dollars and then you just continue to grow. Were you the CEO or what was your no, title? I was the, I guess in the beginning, kind of like head in sales, head of sales and business development, but my, my role ended up becoming the chief revenue officer. So CRO. Okay. Got it. So, so we had CEO Firebird, who I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. kind of thought of the idea. Uh, and he was more focused just on our responses, more on the product and kind of, I guess you call the vision yeah. of the product. Mm-hmm. I, I was more, I guess I was more interested, I was more responsible in, in terms of getting money, right? So, so whether it was like, you know, getting people to purchase the software, yeah, um, talking to partners on like, you know, companies that could potentially integrate with us and like really building out, probably one of my favorite things was building out a team. Hmm. And so kind of similar maybe to how, how you have it now, you had to go from, I think, you know, one to a hundred. That's like, right. And like, how do you build uh, a sales force and how do you, how do you build it? So everyone's kind of firing on all cylinders. So that, that was kind of my focus. Okay. Yeah. It comes down to, cause you're going to make a lot of mistakes because you've never done it before. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you just kind of learn from the mistakes and that's kind of how you, how you grow. Um, and so, uh, so fast forward now, Bloom Nation, still a business. Do you still have equity in that company? Yeah, no, it's very successful. So I yeah. think I actually happened to go to the office. So I left, I left the company two years ago, and I yeah. can talk about that too. But I was on the board in the beginning, mm-hmm. and now I'm just kind of, I guess you just call it a shareholder, maybe friendly advisor. Yeah. But no, don't have any uh, real active role. I still get hit up every day from people with like coupon codes or florists, which was great about the relationship. Like I need help here. Yeah. But I've kind of. It's kind of like dating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a, still have a really good relationship with my my old partners, but mm-hmm. it's like when you're in it, that's my mentality. It's how I've always been. When you're in it, you're in it. Like when you're in poker, you're in poker. Mm-hmm. But the second you decide now it's time for the next, I think you just have, like poker gives you that skill, right? Because you have to somehow detach yourself from a loss or a win. Sure. You can't have a win and go crazy. You can't have a loss and let it drown you. That's and right. So I, I think once you're in it, you're in it and you're like hooked. And the second you decide you're not, it's like almost like you can just detach. Mm, I see. Uh, so so I, I um, 
Yeah, so it ended up just becoming, and even currently, just rooting for them there. I think they're probably heading towards 200 people. Wow. So I think 150 people, they rebranded. So the company is actually now called the Promenade Group because the biggest thing we were trying to tackle towards the end was that we were doing really well with the floor industry. But once you start raising a lot of money, I think they raised you know probably north of $25 million. You have to bring your investors a return. Sure. A high high growth return. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're in now kind of like, how do we bring the same software to like supermarkets, liquor stores, pizza shops, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Wow. Okay. So, so they're, they're, they've kind of rebranded and Bloom Nation is just one part of that multifaceted SMB approach. And so when do you know it was time for you to kind of transition out? Yeah. So I think in that case, it wasn't as easy just to leave, but there was definitely parts where I wasn't, I guess to kind of say this, but either you weren't being challenged, you weren't giving it your all, or you weren't enjoying yourself as much. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of a polarizing person in that sense. And so I think there was some adversity we faced actually, like in 2016, 2017, where the company like literally almost went under. And mm -hmm. so I remember there was a point where we didn't really manage our, you know, you raise money and, you know, throwing parties. I mean, I would definitely not like we work, but like we, we had a party, actually probably a smart party because Greg always made us have to return more money at the party than we spent. Yeah. So it would be like vendor parties. You uh -huh. know what I mean? And it was all exciting, but I think you know, eventually um, that just fired and burned, I guess. Mm. And I think one of the reasons is as we grew and we raised more money and it was like a hundred people, you didn't know people by name. And more importantly for me, it became a little bit more bureaucratic. Mm. Like, you know, those, those, what do you call wild ones, I guess, where it's like, I want to get this done. Yeah. Even though you're what you got to go to this chain of command and that chain of command and you have, <clears throat> I, I think I was, wasn't running on all cylinders anymore. And so I think there was a time where I realized that the thing was once I realized that it was probably a year, if not more, maybe a year and a half till I left mm -hmm. because this is your baby and you have millions of dollars in equity. Right. And yeah. so you want to see that through. So you're so incentivized as well. And plus your best friends are some of the people you started it with. Mm -hmm. So I had to spend a while finding like a another person that could be the CRO. And once I found that person, I still hadn't told my partners, but I think once that person was ready and I could see it, it's almost like you can replace yourself. And I think that's the biggest thing a founder has to do. They have to make it so that they're replaceable. Oh, of course. And so you have to pass those relationships. And, and soon you very quickly realize that everyone is better at doing their individual job than you are. Yeah. So the manager was much better at managing people than yep. I were. Yep. The individual salespeople were betting at selling. Maybe together you're pretty good at doing all of them. Mm -hmm. But I think it was once I saw that and my feelings hadn't changed that I knew. Um, and also with your partners too. Like I, we grew up as best friends. So, so once you start like that, sometimes as you're going through that, the relationship changes a little bit. Yeah. And so I think I realized you know, there'll be like a year where, you know, it, it might be like, wow, we didn't expect this. But very quickly, I knew that like, you know, just kind of give it some time and the relationship will kind of go back to not business. And I think I was so fortunate to be in that position because working with my best friends, you know, they were able to tolerate me and, and everyone has their like idiosyncrasies or quirks or the way they work. And so I don't think I would ever be in in, in the tech world if mm -hmm. I didn't start this with people that were starting alongside with me sure. and we're good with that. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing was like, how do I grow and how do I take those skills to something else? So there's a lot that happened in Bloom Nation we can kind of talk about, but it was just an amazing experience. The company is doing great. But I think the other thing is from a 
entrepreneur or financial perspective when you have two great partners like I did. Mm-hmm. And I think it's your time. It's time to put another horse in the race, you know? Mm. Because the way that I look at it is tech companies all have the ability to go billion or, 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 or bust, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like a poker tournament. And so, you know, wanted to maybe uh, enjoy the building process. And so I was excited to do that. But yeah, there's a lot that, that went there that was incredibly helpful because again, take business school. Yeah. I was kind of just like, wow, business school is like totally just like a classroom exercise. Like, sure. I didn't get, I haven't been sued before. <laughs> I haven't had people yell at me. I haven't hadn't had to fire people. Yeah. I haven't had seen people cry. I haven't had, had that feeling of seeing that, that bank account and like camaraderie. Uh-huh. So the real world just, just excited me. Well, you touched on something. Um, you know, I think it happens with most entrepreneurs, right? Because like, usually when you're an entrepreneur, you start with a passion for something, right? Yeah. Whether you're like solving a problem or you're just got a real serious interest or passion in, in something. And for me, that was SEO, right? I just kind of got into it. Like I said, I was doing SEO for poker companies, you know, and and like I would like geek out over like reverse engineering strategies and figuring out what can I do differently to have a competitive edge, right? And, you know, and then from there, you know, one thing leads to another. And now like people see that you're good at this and they want you to do that for them, right? And so that was the genesis of the agency. And then next year, no, now I'm not spending so much time like geeking out over like link building and whatnot. And, you know, now I'm having to do accounting yeah. or HR or, right? And then you start to kind of do things. And next, you know, I'm not a SEO anymore. I'm a CEO. And so I don't know how to be CEO. So what do I do? I get a coach to help me how to be CEO. Right. And so, yeah, there is all of that. I think every entrepreneur kind of goes through that. Um, And, and, uh, but eventually if, if you're good at it, you end up finding people that are much smarter than you at the specific roles that you're not really good at, or you're not passionate at. And that's kind of the secret for success. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't, you can't scale a company yourself, you know? No. So it's, it's impossible. Okay. So Bloom Nation now branded as what? Promenade Group. Promenade Group. So you now have a new venture called? Whippy. Whippy. Okay. I want to know where that name come from, but I also want to know a little bit more about this venture. Yeah. So left Bloom Nation kind of right as COVID was taking hold. Mm -hmm. And so I think even before I jump into there, that was probably the most adverse year for me. Okay. So I know a lot of people went through highs and lows during COVID, but when you're starting a business and you're like looking at a white wall and you were at a company of a hundred people and now you're trying to figure out, and you don't even have the idea. You sure your intuition or gut said you just got to start something new. Yeah. It's a pretty trying time. So I'm there and trying to figure it out. And we started walking actually around to different vendors. Cause that's just what I knew. Like go talk to a, a lawyer, go talk to a dentist, try to figure out what, what they need. Mm-hmm. And so I think I didn't really have the right idea. We, I started testing stuff, but it was at that time, actually, that there was an engineer that was at Bloom Nation that I was really fond of mm-hmm. and that we, um, you know, chatted a lot. And he, he was he was actually working there. He actually, believe it or not, uh, was from Ireland mm-hmm. and happened to become a one-year program at UCLA. So just really was excited with what we were doing. And so I remember when I was leaving, his name is Jack Kennedy. Okay. He was like, you know what? I'm finishing my master's in mechanical engineering, but I just love this entrepreneur stuff. Like I want to stay. I was like, you don't want to finish? Because he was just here for one year. You don't want to finish what you're doing? Yeah. 
And he's like, no, I'll give it up. Like I'm all, I'm just, he's just like all, all cylinders, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I remember thinking about it and I was like, cause it happened to be that he wasn't a full-time. He was just kind of like here at UCLA and somehow got paired up with us. He'd seen some, some, some job posting was like, Hey, I'd, he was just like, I, I want to work for a couple months while I'm here, six months. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I got to be honest with you. If you're, if you're doing that for me, I'm actually leaving the company in two months. I'm going to announce it. So he happened to be one of the first people that knew. Hmm, okay. And he's like, no, I actually, actually really wanted to work with you, even though you're sales and you're the talkative one. And I'm more interested in engineering. I kind of just liked your approach and how you worked with people. And so now during that year, fast forward to the next year, where I'd already left Lumination and I was trying to, he happened to email me from Ireland. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm about to graduate this year and love to just like, especially shoot the shit with you. Yeah. Just see what you're up to because once I graduate, there are a lot of people that say this, but I really have the entrepreneurial itch. Mm. And so that was in 2020 and happened to be kind of just like finding my own purpose, so to speak, you could say. Okay. Testing different ideas. And so probably one of the best things that happened to me was that that email he sent me. Wow. He took action. He did. Right? And, mm -hmm. and I tell you something right now, like, so he's my partner. Now. I've just never seen someone take action at this level. Mm. Um, and he's, he's 25, you know? So, Whoa. so, uh, you know, so that segues to the next part. And so we started experimenting with ideas. He, he had graduated that summer of 2020 and he was like, I'm going to come back to LA. I'm just, he loved LA, loved California. But of course, like you just couldn't at that time talk mm, about. It. So okay. it was it was a difficult time because the person I actually thought like, okay, let's try to start some stuff, couldn't come over. I couldn't go walk into businesses anymore. So so someone who's an extrovert and like loves people, it was difficult like being stuck in an apartment and staring at a at a wall. Of so course. so you struggled a lot. Like to be honest with you, that year, tried a couple of different ideas and I just didn't. You know, I left my company. Uh, it was a different type of wake up. Like you were, I woke up when I was at Bloom Nation. I just wasn't ex, you know. I didn't feel the purpose mm -hmm. here. It was just like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that year, probably the best thing that can happen to me because all of a sudden you had to like figure out your finances. Like I was coming from a poker world where like there were some times in the poker world where like I would wake up and I would realize, Oh shit, there was 500 bucks in that pocket in the washing machine. So you had no structure, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? <laughs> and so bloom nation prepped me for some of that, but I had to take control of everything. And so it was probably the hardest year I've had that I can remember. Well, because, and you wake up, but having Jack there, it's just like, I was going through ideas and this is a good chance for someone to jump ship on you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even if they want to work with you. And it, it seemed to like get him more excited. Motivated. Motivated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we started looking at stuff like web platforms. We were looking at an on-demand staffing app that we could build. There's just a bunch of stuff we kind of looked at. Oh, so you up. didn't have an idea for a business yet. You guys no. are just brainstorming. Wow. Well, we were doing what you probably know, which is like, faking it till you make it. Yeah. So like go with an idea mm -hmm. and call vendors and like, this is maybe me honing on the Persian side. <laughs> Pretend you actually have it. <laughs> so, so you have to like, you know, one of the smartest tests someone ever told me in business was someone who, I think eventually one of his friends had exited a company very quickly for a couple hundred million bucks. And it was an e-commerce idea. But to see if it actually worked, he just made a quick Shopify website for 50 bucks. Sure. And anyone who purchased, they just said sold out. Yeah. But he just wanted to know if he ran ads, like how many people would have purchased that theoretical product. And uh -huh. He just proved it to himself. So I think that first year we were trying to prove something to ourselves. And I mean, we weren't doing bad. Like we had one business that was making 
you know, something that you could pay yourself. But I, I left Bloom Nation to re-energize and to try to make a, a you know, billion dollar company. That's, that's, that was the thing. Like I wanted, you're hungry for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So finally, towards the end of that year, one of my friends, my best friend, the one I mentioned in poker, I went into his office and it was just like a mess. Like they were, they were not following up with leads. They weren't, you know, tracking things. Like when someone needed someone, it wasn't going to the right person. So I kind of started looking at that. Mm. And then I had a friend of mine who was actually in staffing and he was using like text message, but he wanted to use automation. Like he wanted, if someone texted and said, how do I apply? Just automatically send them the job link. Why are my employees manually doing that? Sure. And you know, if um, I need to send it to a thousand people, I want the software to know who opened the job application link and automatically just remind the ones that, that didn't like functional things that people spend a lot of time doing and just so like, much time, like automated. Yeah. And so, and so Jack, again, I was still working on another idea and with, with together. And he's like, Hey, I'm just going to try building something. And, and, and it's been a year. So it's gone very quick. It's been a year since we started this. Um, and now we, ha we've, we have hundreds of customers, which hmm. is, it just is, is awesome. And, you know, at this point, I still, I don't know that's scalable, right? Yeah. Sell everyone and onboard everyone myself and probably back to working crazy hours again. Yeah. But when you didn't have it and you were just going through like, what is it? Yeah. The second you grasp something, you're more, more likely to just like want to go. And I think if I left Loom Nation and I just had that, I would just think like I'm a king on a chair. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you had to kind of fail fast to just like get that hunger again. Sure. Well, you sound like you're the person, it's kind of like me, like you like agile environments, right? Where you can kind of just quickly shift and change and not have to go through all the bureaucratic red tape every time you want to kind of have like implement an idea. And it seems like that kind of drives you a lot more and why you kind of like that world of chaos, I guess, if you will, really. Right. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so it's an, it, would you call it, it's just an M SMS automation solution? Is that kind of what Whippy is? I, I think we're moving so quick that we don't necessarily, I mean, I, I would say we're like, so, so right now Whippy's focused like on, on text messaging mm -hmm. and a bunch of different use cases. Like, you know, for the example of the lawyer, the PI lawyer, what did they want? So I just started watching them Yeah, and they do a lot of Facebook ads, you know? Yeah. And they wanted the software or they wanted to, so what they were doing before was having to download a spreadsheet and spend a lot of time. And so we're like, okay, let's integrate this with Facebook ads. Let's text the person that was in the accident. And if they don't respond, let's text them this, this, and this. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Let, let's do things so that like, your team doesn't have to. Sure. And then in the case of staffing, I kind of went over it. Um, there were even like doctors, like in the cosmetic space, like orthodontists, people in plastic surgery. Yeah. That were like all about ROI. And they're like, so... So Whippy is is really an automation and, and it uses some AI. It's really cool, but in specifically in, in text, but I don't think that's the long-term vision. I mean, I think there's so many different communication things like being able to understand how you email people mm -hmm. or be able to transcribe calls. I mean, there's a lot of different things that in the end, the it's the customer that they're all getting touched. Yeah. And so I think if you bring that together, it just gets, becomes very powerful. But I think we're lucky enough to find something, to be honest with you, that people are willing to pay for from day one. So yeah. I think if you're going to dream big, you, you can dream big. But unlike Bloom Nation, where we raised 2025, mm -hmm. this one I decided to, to bootstrap. Bootstrap. Because when you do raise a lot of money, 
it's awesome. Like you get to have an office and, and I was enamored by that. You know, like you make an office and where is the table, the glass conference room? Like they actually physically, our landlord at the time on the promenade was like, I'm thinking about redoing this anyways. How would you guys want to build it? We made our own WeWork. Oh, well. But, but the downside is that that money is kind of still held or those rules or you owe to investors. It's mm -hmm. not like you can just go put that money in your pocket. And I no. think now I'm more hungry to, to put that in my pocket. Ah, uh, got it. Got it. And it's just you and Jack right now, or you have more staff? So, so we have, um, so we, so I started a little bit differently, uh -huh. started off with myself, Jack and four engineers. Okay. So, so Jack first, then, then four engineers. Got so it. unlike for Bloom Nation, we outsource the engineering. You come from a different perspective where it's all engineers in the mm -hmm. beginning. Oh yeah. Um, but now yeah. we have been adding some salespeople, some, some kind of account managers and, and yeah. And one last question. Um, whippy was that uh where did that come from yeah so i don't i want to say i don't want to say my dog uh -huh. it's really uh, with my mom and my brother uh -huh. got a, a whippet have you ever seen a whippet there actually have have it here it looks like this you know oh the dog like yeah, a little yeah. greyhound uh -huh. Uh -huh. but the thing about it is that i was literally sitting there and this is no joke thinking of ideas and and i was like as i was kind of starting with where we we're going like you got to see this whippet. It's the fastest dog I've ever seen. Yeah. Super, like, just like a dart, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, we have to think of a name. And I was like, Whippy. Because huh. he's a whippet. Yeah. And that guy is straight and fast. Yeah. And just full of energy. So we didn't want to make, I'm not big on like, because you, your idea for a product is to be bigger than just text messaging. Or like in the case of Bloom Nation, bigger than just flowers. So mm -hmm. I think Whippy was just a cool name that can really mean anything. That's awesome. Um, sometimes when you ask the universe, the universe gives back. Um, and that happened with me recently. Um, I wrote a book. It's called Law Firm SEO. And it's specifically for lawyers that want to do marketing with digital, right? Um, but then I wanted to write another book um, that was kind of catering like to everybody else. That's not just lawyers. And so I couldn't think, I'm like, it has to be two words. Um, you know, what could I come up with? And I was throwing out names. I'm like, I don't like that. I don't like that. And so I've got a couple books um, and one of them is called Words That Sell. So I literally opened it up and the first word that I saw was honest. And I'm like, that's exactly what I want is, you know, because there's so many people that are snake oil salesmen in the world of SEO. I'm like, I just want honesty and that's what this book is about. And so now it's called Honest SEO. And so that book comes out. But like I said, similar story. Sometimes you just kind of ask the universe and it gives you back, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, no. Well, I think in uh, in maybe three or five years, you'll come back as a uh, maybe a billionaire with this project, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> knock on wood. Um, but I want to wrap up with uh, something that we call Hennessy Heart to Heart. Uh, it's where I just ask you questions um, and then you just kind of rattle off the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. It's simple. Good. What was your favorite subject in school? I would say math. Math. That's what I thought. Yeah. Which of the five senses would you say is your strongest? Probably vision. Vision? Okay. I need to see things. How many languages do you speak? Questionably three. What are the three languages? Um, I speak... English. Uh -huh. So that's um, Persian. Okay. Okay. Got it. I speak one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your proudest accomplishment? I, I think 
if I was to think recently, probably like actually probably the first poker tournament I won when I was going through that. And I was just like, I remember actually getting a little emotional. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, the World Series of Poker obviously is huge mm -hmm. and, and raising that money and starting a company. But if I was to give you a curveball, probably like that first poker tournament. The first poker tournament where you came home to mom. Yep. Got it. What makes you laugh the most? Prank calling people. Or, <laughs> and, or now actually, like I told you with my mom, as funny as I said, like we, we will use Whippy to send out these texts to family members. Yeah. Right now, I'm actually going from here to a rehearsal of my cousin's wedding. Yeah. So I sent it pretending to be the wedding coordinator. So. <laughs> that is awesome. You got to you gotta share some screenshots yeah. so that we can include it in the post of yeah, like responses. One of my cousins is pretty sure that the wedding coordinator is hitting on him. So. Oh, really? <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. How would your friends describe you? So I think, you know, to a certain degree, like, I understand people. So I asked someone that recently and like, what's, you know, what's the good and what's the bad. Mm -hmm. And he just said like, you, you know, when you're selling people or when you're mm -hmm. connecting with people, I think like some, some degree of emotional intelligence is pretty important. So I think I connect well with people. Okay. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, aside from poker, what sport do you watch on TV? I watch actually a lot of, of soccer. I don't watch that much poker. I, no. I watch it once in a while, but love, I can't wait for the world cup. Mm -hmm. I'm watching right now. And again, I'm like everyone else where I watch the YouTube 10 minute yeah, version the of, of everything. Of yeah. The games yeah. And stuff. yeah. But I love to watch uh, soccer. What's your go-to karaoke song? Can't even think, but I just remember that when I was rushing a fraternity at Berkeley, we had to say, uh, sing uh, Cindy Lauper's when, what is it? Girls want to have fun. <laughs> so I, I don't, I, I really can't go past that. Uh, if you had all the money you could ever desire, what would you do all day? I think almost everyone who's successful, and I'm not saying that I'm there yet, mm -hmm. but like my dad showed me this. My dad is uh, in his mid-70s and he still wants to work. So I think even if I had all the money in the world, yeah, like would love to find ways to probably give most of that away. Yeah. But I think I would still want to have purpose. Yeah. If I lose that and I'm just like, hey, this is awesome. I'm on vacation all the time. Yeah, that I'll get, get depressed quick. Of course, anybody yeah. would. Yeah. Sometimes it's just passing along the wisdom to the younger generation and teach them the way, right? That's true. Mm -hmm. But I got to keep it. I, I learned in poker that if you just step back mm -hmm. and you don't still play the game, you're not going to be teaching for long. Sure. Yep. Do you have any pet peeves? I, I think the one in terms of like business that like I kind of look higher is you just like poker you never took anything personal you know mm -hmm. like we used to relish to go to someone and say like how would you play this hand they wouldn't tell you because they think you're going to take their money yeah. so we were always open to feedback because we needed it mm -hmm. but I think one peeve on the business side was it was just hard to find people that truly were open to taking feedback and so I remember in the beginning when I was the manager and we cut that pretty quick there'd generally be crying sessions coming out there so mm -hmm. we found professional managers who probably had a lot more um, of a can you know could go through the process and had the time, but even when 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 we had those managers, it was like I had a pet peeve with people that just weren't open. I wouldn't say being criticized; that's not the right way, mm -hmm. but on like really trying to to improve. And I think this last year taught me even for myself like how vital self improvement is. People open to constructive criticism. Yeah, yeah, and I think it starts with yourself. So mm -hmm. and that's very cliche. I don't want to get like the that that vibe going, but I think you have to first. Um, like look at yourself 
And so I think that's a big thing. Like people that are just not willing to do that. I think that. Oh, it starts from you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Favorite type of ethnic food. That's good. I like that. Food we like. So um, I like, like, I love pizza. I love like Thai. I think Uh recently my mom and a bunch of my family are vegetarian. So we've Uh gone to some amazing like vegan Thai places. And I'm not, I mean, we're Persian. We love kebab. We love that stuff. But yeah. I think recently Thai has been one of my favorites. Spicy yeah. Thai. I love Persian food, man. <laughs> I love Persian <laughs> Who food. Who doesn't, yeah, right? Yeah. Yep. So good. Favorite childhood memory? The first one that comes to mind right now is just like, you know, we talked about R- Rolo, who's a whippet. Mm-hmm. But when I was a young kid, I-, I had a Great Dane. And the Great Dane was like larger than me. And so I've been told... I mean, I don't really remember it, but like that I was falling in the pool and that like this Great Dane was huge. And so the Great Dane literally, I mean, the, the Great I, Great Dane is, you know, seven feet tall. Huge. But actually like grabbed me and my parents came. So Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. When were you the most disappointed in yourself? I don't know if it's disappointed, but again, I think this like last, last year, year and a half starting a new company. I actually had a couple other friends who left their companies and, and they weren't as fortunate. Like, I think they're still going through a cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe the first couple of months trying to like, you know, need a, need a, a little encouragement or whatever. Like entrepreneurs don't need that. Mm. Like poker players don't need that. So I think there was a little bit of a disappointment in, in maybe things not working out as fast enough, but that's, that's life. And so you just have to somehow keep faith, you know? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that was a big part of it. Yeah. Sometimes I, entrepreneurs or people that kind of be or perceived to be successful, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on in the background. That, oh, for sure. You know, like they're not as vulnerable. Um, and I think know. the more successful they are, mm-hmm. the more they had to go through shit. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've, they've built up this perception and they have to keep that facade. Right. Yeah. Last question. Um, in what way do you want to contribute to making the world a better place? That's a very broad question. So I, I, I don't even, I don't even know where to start there, but I think the one place I've learned that my parents, if I just go back to the world mm. is like how important respect is for other people. So wh- whether it's, you sometimes get tried, it's the same in poker. I'll, I'll use that now. If you don't respect your opponent, they're going to crush you. Mm. So you have to be open. But I think if I was, I don't even know where to go with save the world, but yeah. I think one really important thing with like empathy Mm. is to to myself to continue to be more and more empathetic. But I think, you know, no matter it's your intern, your waiter, or your boss, like mm. I think having some ability like in poker, and maybe this is a good way to leave it, like you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes mm. and like actually think of how they're going to play the hand to kind of outplay them. And I think more and more people, including myself at times, need to put themselves in someone else's shoes to yeah. really to really be there. And so I think that's something that from a holistic perspective, I would implore on, on other people. I don't think it's going to, you know. No, I think it does change the world. It's just because it's contagious, right? And if you're rude to a waiter, right? Just because you classify yourself on a different level as them, you know, yeah. I mean, like that's not living life, right? No, so, no. And I yeah. think, I think culture in a company as you build it is like the most vital thing. Because mm-hmm. I told you in the end, Everyone becomes better at you at that individual thing. That's right. But why Why should they work? Or your customers, why should they refer people? Why should people? And it's like, ends up being you. And I think the more and more you start to 
to put yourself in their shoes in every single way. It's hard to do that. Like better you make the people around you. So yeah. Good way to look at life. Well, David, it's been awesome having you on the show. Appreciate you coming down here to the studio. Um, how can my listeners keep up with you and learn more about Whippy? Yeah. So um, the website is Whippy, W-H-I-P-P-Y dot A-I. Pretty simple. So Whippy. Mm-hmm. And my email is just um, David at Whippy dot co. Um, you can just email me there. Yep. I should actually, as I'm saying, this probably added David at whippy.ai. So I probably will soon. There you go. And if they but, want to yeah. watch any of your poker videos, I'm sure there's stuff on yeah, YouTube yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks sure. again for stopping by. My of friend. course. Thank you for having me, guys. Enjoyed it. This has been the Jason Hennessy Podcast. This show is produced by Whitney Welsh and Jenna Kershaw, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher, and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 